There are few animal species as captivating as elephants. They look like big old clumsy animals, but actually they're very, very dexterous and agile. And yet, nearly 100 elephants are killed each day for their ivory tusks. International policies have not just failed to halt the trade of ivory. In some regions, poaching has actually gotten worse. The trade is run by organized criminal networks, and the money funds militant and terrorist groups. But leaders are stepping up to create new programs to protect our most iconic animals. My name is Catherine Rehimaki, and my guest today is a world leader in efforts to conserve elephants and other African wildlife. Paula Kahumbu is an ecologist and the CEO of Wildlife Direct, a Kenyan wildlife conservation organization. Since 2014, she spearheaded the Hands Off Our Elephants campaign, which aims to mobilize Kenyans to protect their elephants. Paula, thanks for joining me on All for Earth. Thanks for having me. Can you just set the stage for us and explain why elephants are so important and what's happening to them around Africa? Sure. Um, Elephants are such an incredible species. These are animals that are ecosystem engineers. Mm -hmm. They eat, each of them per day, about 150 kilograms of vegetation. And that includes fruits and seeds. And that means that they're moving nutrients around ecosystems at a very, very rapid rate. You know, everything about elephants is connected to the ecosystems. Even their footsteps Mm -hmm. become little ponds and there's a whole life (laughs) that goes on inside a footstep. And as they move, they move not just in small areas, they move between habitats. So they're connecting forests with woodlands, with grasslands, with deserts even. They are modifying landscapes. We've seen in Kenya, for example, when elephants move up mountains, they create pathways those pathways allow other animals to access the tops of mountains, including livestock. And we can see in places where elephants have disappeared that species diversity begins to collapse. Certain plants might become more dominant and they will overwhelm ecosystems. And we see rivers drying up and very few people really get this, that elephants, they're not just bringing seeds and eating vegetation, turning over nutrients, they're also digging up nutrients from under the ground and they are opening up water and allowing water to flow and that creates access for many other species. So biodiversity and elephants, they're interlinked. They really are a keystone species. They're vital for the thriving biodiversity in many parts of Africa. If we lose them, we lose all this connectivity and productivity. Right. And and there's an aura to them, too. Right. I mean, they have a very strong societal um, relate, uh, system, I guess, uh, and incredibly intelligent animals. Well, elephants and human beings evolved together on the African continent. And we've had a, an ancient relationship with them. People in Kenya know that elephants are really a vital, I guess, way of, of understanding ecosystems. How elephants use ecosystems is how we learn also. Some communities even follow elephants and track them to find pasture, to find water. Um, and in the case of some tribes, they even believe that elephants have spirits of humans and that they represent us, that their behavior, their social relationships, their leadership, their compassion for one another, um, the way that they make decisions are actually lessons for us. So it's very, very beautiful when you see this strong relationship and you see elephants. They're not just robotic creatures. They are so smart. 
they can interact with humans in a way that's very clear. They know who to trust and who not to trust. And I've been in situations where an elephant uh, did something to me and I was in a car with the U.S. ambassador at the time and I thought I was going to be killed. This elephant was literally had his had his tusks under my car and he was trying to lift the car and his face was right on my windshield, hmm. right next to the U.S. ambassador. And after a few seconds of this, we realized this elephant wasn't angry. He was just happy and he was just, you know, all, like trying to hug us. You know, it was really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the Hands Off Our Elephants campaign and sort of what the focus of that program is? Well, we started our campaign because there was this evidence, blinding evidence to us, that there was going to be a catastrophe for our elephants in Kenya. And, you know, wildlife, especially elephants, attract enormous numbers of visitors and it contributes to 10% of our GDP. It was critically important to us that we didn't wait for a crisis, but that we avert it, that we really change the course of history. And we could see that that wouldn't happen unless we as Kenyans took the lead. The campaign looked at first what everyone else was doing and why was it that Kenya was this safe haven for criminals, poachers and traffickers using our country and our ports um, as the best place to do their despicable business. We looked at what other organizations are doing. They were doing more boots on the ground, so more of the same, which would have some additional benefit. More guns, more anti-poaching units, more motorbikes, more Land Rovers. And we said there's got to be something else that is going to transform the outcomes. There is some way that a few number of dollars would have a much bigger impact. So we went to the courtrooms to find out why was there no deterrent? Why did people find Kenya a safe place? Mm -hmm. Our work involved looking at courtroom documents and analyzing the outcomes of trials. And what we found was that more than 70% of case files for poachers were lost or missing. So that alone revealed to us that there was an enormous amount of corruption in the court system. We saw that many poachers were repeat offenders, but they were not documented as repeat offenders. So there was a problem in the way that the data was being analyzed and used in the courtrooms themselves. And many cases were thrown out because evidence could not be linked to the suspects. So we felt that this was the most profitable way to spend our small amount of funds. We recruited young lawyers. So we're the only organization, I think, in Africa that has 50% of our staff are lawyers. And their job is to rifle through these documents in courts. These are public documents. For the first time, we've now analyzed every single wildlife trial in the country for the last more than 10 years. And we were able to reveal what's really happening and identify strategies for change. That's led to new laws. It's led to new standard operating procedures. It's led to our lawyers standing in court with government prosecutors and helping with the trials. We've even analyzed phone records. We've done all kinds of things to help. Now we have a 95% conviction rate. Wow. And the law is so severe that it's a huge deterrent. Poaching has gone way down. We now have a very, very low level of poaching of elephants. And for us, the solution really was taking ownership, making strategic actions, and publicizing it in the media. And every time we caught a criminal, had them on trial, every single trial date we publicized. These people are now famous, infamous. <laughs> And they can't walk in the streets of Nairobi without 
people knowing who they are. Um, and that's a really big part of it is shaming these characters behind the destruction of our natural resources. How much pushback did you get given that there is an aspect of shaming, not just the criminals, but also the officials who are like behaving in a really ineffective way? So, of course, when you um, su suggest that the courts, the magistrates, the really people who should be upholding the law, when you suggest that they might be being bought off. They really like that. <laughs> Best friends. <laughs> well, it was it was difficult. It was yeah. difficult. And for a while, they tried to make sure that we didn't have a window of opportunity to participate or to, yeah. um, to have access to these data. But we also have some really brilliant, brilliant leaders in Kenya who stand for justice. And... Um, while we never said this particular individual magistrate did X, Y, Z, we did find evidence that there were particular individuals who we could say this trial is not going according to the way it should go. Mm -hmm. We'd like the senior officials to investigate. And we had in the case of one particular um, criminal, his name is Faisal Muhammad Ali, his trial was restarted three times mm -hmm. because the magistrate was sent home and a new magistrate brought on. And finally, the third magistrate, in four days, she convicted him and sent him to jail for 20 years. So we know that it can work. We know that yeah. um, it takes a lot of pressure. It takes a lot of persistence. It's tough. There is pushback also, of course, from criminals. These are not individuals working alone. This is a network. These are cartels. Many of them are international. They are very well funded. They are not just trading in wildlife products. They're trading in guns or other um, weapons. They're trading in drugs and even humans. So we, our staff were threatened. We had at one point two bodyguards assigned to our lawyer to make sure that he was safe when going into court. He had, you know, guns pointed at him. He had uh, one of our lawyers, a woman, she had literally a, fa a group of family members of this particular criminal close around her inside a courtroom. And threaten her and warn her, we know where you live, we know who your family is, you know, you mm. better step back, you better back off. Um, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I have to say I'm very proud of my team. They're incredibly courageous, they're young, and they're hungry for success, which yeah. is great. And it sounds like you've seen that success. Um, can can you talk a little bit about what that international trade of ivory looks like? Because I, I think the criminal aspect of it and the large-scale international cartel aspect of it is um, it was surprising to me hearing about that well you know the this is the the real challenge that uh, all over the world the bad guys are usually drawn or illustrated or depicted as these poor Africans with big guns mm -hmm. somewhere in the wilderness they are a part of the story yes they are definitely the guys who are pointing their guns at the animals and killing, obviously, you know, elephants. These are majestic, intelligent, compassionate animals that uh, is traumatic for the animals and for the families of these elephants when they get killed. But really, the machine of poaching is, they, those guys are just employees. They are paid a fee, which is not very much, maybe $50 to, $50 to $200 to kill an elephant. They are sometimes issued the weapons and the ammunition. But the real beneficiaries of this are all the guys in between. So that ivory might be collected from a particular dead elephant or elephants, and it'll be moved to a place. 
it'll be aggregated with ivory that's come from other places and it'll be moved again and it'll be aggregated. And what you'll see is that a shipment of ivory might be coming from several different places and it will be accumulated until it's enough to fill the container. So most ivory is moved in containers. It's an interesting product because it's not like diamonds, it's big and bulky. Um, You can move it in small amounts, you know, one task at a time. You'll see people carrying it on a motorbike, (laughs) you know, like one or two tasks on the back of a motorbike. We've heard of school children having small pieces of ivory, you know, tasks cut into pieces, put into school bags of children. Because who would suspect a school child of carrying ivory? So so they've... They've enlisted the whole community, including children in this business. And the ivory will eventually move to a port like Mombasa, which is a huge and I would say the heart of the corruption because you have many warehouses where the ivory can be hidden. And these people are super smart. Mm -hmm. I think the innovations around the transport of ivory are fascinating. We've had cases where a vehicle will drive into a yard to, to be filled with uh, tea. Uh, the, there'll be cameras in the building. The tea will be poured into this container. The container will then be driven out and taken to the port. But by the time it's seized on the high seas, it's full of ivory. <laughs> There's not a <laughs> grain of tea in that container. Yeah. And these guys have somehow managed to you know, replace that tea with ivory and somehow avoid detection. So containers are seized uh, when they leave their, their um, ports they are locked. There's a there's a system which you can tell if it's been tampered with. So somehow they are getting access to the inside of these containers without tampering with these locks. So nobody suspects any hmm. dirty business. What they did was remove the hinges from the entire back of these containers and replaced the, the tea with ivory. We've seen logs which are coming out of places like South Sudan and the Congo being brought into Kenya in uh, custom bonded containers, which means they cannot be opened in Kenya unless an official from customs from the country where it came from flies to Kenya in order to be present at the time when that container is open. So it's very unlikely for these containers to be opened. They contain logs. So you you won't open this unless you're absolutely certain that there's ivory in there. And inside the logs, they've been hollowed out. It's unbelievable what the extent these guys will go to. Hollow out the logs and put one task mm-hmm. inside a square block of a log. Mm-hmm. Um, now, increasingly what's happening is people are using dogs to sniff out the ivory. Dogs are incredibly good at this. And so to get away from the dogs, they are <laughs> wrapping this ivory in chili powder or or dipping it in <laughs> wax, beeswax, uh, all kinds of really wacky ways to try and... And it's an arms race. It, it really is. It yeah. really is. And these guys are obviously clever and they can afford to lose a few containers. In the case of Faisal Muhammad Ali, we have now been able to connect over a dozen shipments of ivory. Maybe four or five of them were seized. The rest probably got through, which means that they can afford to lose a container here and there. And they are constantly changing their shipping routes in order to you know, derail any detectives uh, looking into this. By the time the ivory gets to China or to Asia, there are so many different ports that it's very hard to find it again. Okay. So really the bottleneck or the ports of Africa where all this ivory is accumulated before it gets onto the ships. And that's where the attention is, is to address the problem of ivory leaving the ports of Africa. So, so if you crack down in Kenya, 
does that ivory just get rerouted elsewhere? I mean, obviously there's a sourcing issue where there are elephants in Kenya, but there are elephants elsewhere. And so um, are, are you just moving that criminality elsewhere? So it's just, yeah, it's like a balloon. You squeeze it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the air goes to another little pocket. The ivory that is coming out of Kenya is not from Kenya. Yeah. So we know for a fact, based on the DNA, which is being analyzed uh, in the University of Washington here in the United States, this ivory is coming from Congo, from Central African Republic, sometimes from as far as Gabon or Zambia and Tanzania, Uganda. It's being brought to Kenya because somebody has cracked the corruption trail. Mm-hmm. Right? They have figured out how you move it into Kenya, across Kenyan borders, how you go down the highways without anybody stopping you, or if they stop you, pay them off. And when you get to the port of Mombasa, they figured out how to avoid going through the scanners. So scanners are interesting. Ivory has a very particular signature on a scanner. It comes out as really dense. It's a very peculiar product. Mm -hmm. So you can see it inside. Even if there are hidden chambers inside these containers, you can see ivory. So they've come up with very clever ways of avoiding those um, scanners. Um, But if we, when, as we focus on Kenya, what you start seeing is ivory leaving Dar es Salaam, Mm -hmm. or you start seeing it moving up into Somalia and Djibouti into other countries. This is, or you might even see it coming out of airports. We've seen enormous amount of ivory now leaving as freight. Mm. And that's the new threat is that most companies are not concerned about any product that goes in freight unless it's are going to explode. Yeah, <laughs> right? right. So they're more concerned about the plane being downed than about whatever is being... Right. So as long as it's shipped. not lithium batteries. Lithium batteries, mercury. I hear that mercury yeah. is like the big thing, but... Um, it means that there is very little attention from anyone to address what's in containers when it leaves Africa, because that isn't where people make the taxes. They make taxes on entry. So there's far less attention to exports than on imports. So is there an aspect of this work that is about cutting down on the demand? I mean, you're talking about the supply side, um, but given the balloon can squeeze to different areas, um, you know, I'm sort of keenly aware that the demand is coming from Asia. Um, I don't want to exclude the United States from that because there's some demand here as well. Um, so so what, what do you do to cut down on that? So the problem of demand is a really tricky one. Um, sourcing the ivory from Africa, it looks like, yes, there are all kinds of strategies that people are using to get the ivory out of Africa. But pinning down the demand is quite hard because you're talking about primarily China. The population is massive. Very few people have started really seriously looking at, so who is this demand? Because it's not every Chinese person, right? It's certain Chinese people. And who are they? What kind of people are they? What what are their backgrounds? Where, Where do they live? It's not known. And what do they do with the ivory? Because you go to a Chinese person's home, you're not going to see ivory everywhere. So what are they doing with it and how do they keep it? And it's now believed that, until very recently anyway, ivory was coming into China and being stored as a, like a stock, like a savings, like a commodity. Yeah, exactly. And and, uh, for many of the Chinese people working in Africa, what it means is that the market is not in China anymore. The market has come to Africa. Hmm. You have millions of Chinese workers who come to Africa. They work for a short while and then they leave with a nest egg, one or two tusks. That tusk... Hmm is worth about, at one point, it was $3,000 per kilogram. And you can imagine they're buying it at, you know, just a few dollars in Africa, and they're able to sell it later 
for three thousand dollars. So it's a fantastic investment right. for them. Um, so this is one of the the biggest challenges. There's been a lot of work by different organisations, um, but so long as the basic um, knowledge of who the market is, so long as that is still, you know, in question, it's very hard to target. However, the Chinese are an interesting people. I don't know if you've ever been to China. I've been many times, and and I've been three times this year alone. And what's interesting is this is a country that is so highly controlled. You yeah. walk down the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, there are cameras everywhere. You're being tracked all the time. There is no way people are buying ivory in China and the government is not aware of it. Yeah, there's no way you're selling ivory and the government is not aware of it. So it's really the government that I think is failing everyone, especially elephants. If the government of China wants to shut down on something, they will shut down on it. I was there during the swine flu um, period in I can't remember the year. I think it was um, 2007, 2008. I can't remember. And they had every single child in every single school have their temperature checked every single day. Any child who didn't get their temperature checked, they would come to that home. Every airport and every airline that landed, every passenger's temperature was taken. If your temperature was above a certain level, they tracked you, and they checked you every single day for your time in China. And if your temperature rose above a certain level, you were asked to leave. So they have the means. We know it. If it matters to them, they will take the actions. All it would take for the president of China is to make a comment. Um, ask his people not to buy ivory. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, they have banned ivory in the domestic markets of China, but the government hasn't come out with a value statement about it. They've simply said it's no longer legal, and as a result, people figure, well, it's not legal in China to sell ivory, but we can just go to Cambodia or Vietnam or Thailand or any other neighboring country, and the ivory markets, the sellers have moved. The ivory carvers have simply moved across borders. And so what we're seeing is while the price of ivory has dropped by 50%, which is still not enough, yeah. um, the amount of ivory in trade is still very high. And some of the world's largest seizures have taken place in the last six months. Hmm. Um I want to move beyond just elephants because you do a lot more than just that. Um, So can you talk a little bit about um, your work in African wildlife in general? And um, in particular, you have a new TV program, um, Wildlife Warriors, and sort of what the focus of that is um, and and your motivation. Okay. Um, So when we started our campaign, Hands Off Our Elephants, what happened very quickly was enormous amount of public interest and visibility being a voice on an issue which is actually quite tough because it involves corruption and high profile people um, gave Kenyan citizens a sense of this is somebody we need to listen to Mm -hmm. and that actually created an enormous you know wonderful opportunity for us to speak out on many other issues not just elephants and not just ivory trade Um, I started making tv shows because we couldn't get wildlife shows in Kenya, we didn't want people to simply fight for elephants. We realized very quickly they don't know that much about elephants. Most Kenyans have never seen an elephant. And the press was... Which is surprising. Well, it is and it isn't because yeah. elephants are in our national parks and yeah. most Africans don't go to the parks. The parks have been developed primarily for an international tourism hmm. audience and that's because it brings in a lot of money. So there's a logic, but it's 
it's not a long-term strategy. It's a short-term strategy to get money. It's not a long-term strategy to save the parks and to save our extraordinary wildlife. Kenya is a mega diverse country. We have so much at stake in in this climate um, threatened world and the extinction crisis that is facing the whole globe. So the TV series we've recently started is very exciting because it's the first time an African crew has come together uh, to shine a light on our own heroes. It's no longer about David Attenborough. We love him, but his shows are not available in Africa. They're not available on national television, even though many episodes were filmed in Africa. And what it means is there is this vacuum of information. And that means few people are being inspired about nature. And so what we're doing is telling our own stories, really reframing that narrative. It's not just that David Attenborough can tell wonderful stories. His stories are out of this world but they don't relate to the people on the ground in Africa. And so we are telling the stories of our own heroes, of a man who, as a child, stumbled on a nest of turtles and never lost that image and remained curious about these animals until he was in his 40s when he gave up his job to go and become this turtle rescue Mm saviour. He's this extraordinary man called um, Fikiri Kiponda, And his story has inspired hundreds of people to go and volunteer on Saving Turtles. Um, Many of our heroes in our series are from the local community. They have grown up with these animals. They have dedicated their lives, made huge sacrifices and done the unthinkable. In a country where people have always said, Kenyans are poor. Why would they save animals? They need to eat. They need money. And then you have these people who have made such huge sacrifices. They're so inspiring. And in one of our shows, we had 200 phone calls, people saying, we want to volunteer for this guy, Ian Lemayan, because he's done everything you can imagine to try and save rhinos. Or Ambrose um, Latuya, who has been at the forefront of saving an animal that is hated, detested by his own people, the leopards. Mm -hmm. But he identified this black leopard that amazingly... Uh, lives and roams in the area with his community. And he's been able to tell this new narrative, which is the Black Panther does exist. <laughs> you know, And this is like a symbol of power and majesty in Africa. So we've been able to tell these stories, remind people that we have a cultural connection to nature. Many of our family names are animals. Mm-hmm. Our totems are animals. Many of our beliefs around animals in the Maasai. People believe elephants are their ancestors and that we humans are a lesser species, that we have so much to learn from these wild animals. And this is what we want to revive and retell and strengthen in the national narrative. Um, and we want people to go to the parks. We want them to know that they can visit the parks, that it, it actually isn't expensive. There's so much to learn so it's really exciting. The TV series is just a part of a whole new, um, what would I call it, a, a movement. Yeah. Wildlife Warriors is about Kenyans connecting to nature, treasuring it and acting. And so the show goes into classrooms to children. We train teachers. We provide books and materials and films. And then we take children into the parks. Just this year, we took 116 children aged 10 to 15 on a five-day camping expedition. Mm. 
And it was outstanding what happened. What we discovered is children had these phenomenal voices and not just interest, but ability to, uh, I don't know, self-express what they're witnessing, what they're experiencing, whether it's in voice, in poetry, in songs, but also in drawings, photography. We had a child who was just this extraordinary photographer and was showing children that their careers don't have to be biologists. You don't have to be a PhD from Princeton (laughs) to do conservation. (laughs) You could be an engineer or a lawyer or an artist. Um, So we're creating this new economy around conservation. I was watching one of the episodes yesterday of the um, baby elephant orphanage and Dorothy. And um, I love that you sort of went to her traditional village and talked about, you know, if she weren't doing this work, what she would be doing in her her village, which mostly was going to fetch water each day and bring it back. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think changing that possibility of of what someone can do with their life in Kenya was um, really powerful. It's interesting because Dorothy did give up a potential job, I guess, in Nairobi where her family might have earned, been able to have more money. But what's interesting in Dorothy's story is that that episode, which was very much about education, Mm -hmm. that she did finish her education. For girls in her community, that's rare. And as a result of her being educated and telling that story, we were able to raise $1,000 in one day from local people to send 10 girls to high school. So the the power of this um, series goes beyond what we could even possibly have imagined. Most of our heroes have told us that they're famous, <laughs> that their work is now being recognized, not just locally, but internationally. Right. Some of them have gotten grants and some of, two of them got scholarships to go to university. Yeah. So it's having a huge impact, which I'm really proud of. Are you seeing um, more broadly a change in Kenya's society and how um, the the citizens are appreciating their natural assets? Absolutely. I I'm I'm really sad that we don't have a way of tracking it like quantitatively. Yeah. But there's lots of anecdotal evidence. I went to a funeral in my home village, which is near Mount Kenya. This is a really rural village where the roads are mud paths and there must have been about 200 people there. And I didn't even know the person whose funeral I was going to. I was there with my siblings and some of my relatives and so many people came up to me and they were saying, are you the person that we've seen on television? Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's just amazing to see these animals. They were not young people. So our program was targeting a young audience. We want young people to care about nature. These were generally very old people who clearly are are happy to, to watch wildlife. So in terms of viewing wildlife, yes, huge shift. And all the television channels now carry wildlife content. More channels want content. And it's not just Kenya. We've just signed an agreement with Nigeria, which is the biggest, most populous country in the whole continent. They're carrying our series from November, which will reach about about almost 70 million people. Hmm. So that's super exciting. Um, But on the ground, what we're seeing is amazing. So Kenyans love planting trees, and we've been using our show and our work in the classrooms to remind people, don't just plant any old tree. (laughs) You know, plant a tree that's indigenous, Mm -hmm. that's going to um, revive and um, restore the local ecosystems. 
And just uh, two days ago, one of the schools planted trees and I asked them, which trees did you plant? And they told me the two trees, that species that they planted, both of them were indigenous trees. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited that it's having that impact. People care. They're taking much more thoughtful actions. Um, they are protesting when they see things happening that they don't like to happen. There was a debate on television last night about a new road that will mm-hmm. go right through one of the urban parks. And the number one argument was it's going to threaten biodiversity. So those are the kind of impacts I'm seeing. It's no longer just, oh, we need all this development because we're a country that needs our economic growth. People are challenging the destruction of natural spaces, greenery, biodiversity, which is, I think, a really, really important trend at this time especially. Yeah. Well, Paula, thank you so much. I um, am so inspired by all that you've done. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Paula Kuhumbu is a Kenyan wildlife conservationist. She leads Wildlife Direct and is the host of Wildlife Warriors TV. You can learn more about her at her website, paulakuhumbu.org, and at Twitter at Paula Kuhumbu. Wildlife Direct is at wildlifedirect.org. You can visit our website, allforearth.princeton.edu, to hear all of our episodes and for links to related web content. Thank you all for listening. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications, in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.